Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Everyone, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Melissa and I are back to recording after a bit. I can't think of the last time we recorded together. And just the two of us. I yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> yes. So I'm excited about that and even more excited to share with you all a guest that we have today. Um, so we have a special interview with Jamie Merrick, and we're going to be talking all about um, dissociation and EMDR and really trying to focus in on how do we redefine and recontextualize dissociation because there is so much out there on it. It feels like it's almost like a buzzword in a lot of things uh, lately. And so let's let's dive into why that is and maybe start to get into more depths around it rather than it just being a, a hot topic. Yeah. Or a scary thing. Yeah. Many of us were taught in our basic training. I think that uh, we've talked to a lot of individuals that sort of leave their initial training with a sense of terror around approaching anyone oh that gosh. presents with dissociative <laughs> symptoms, um, you know, like keep the buzzers out of the room or else. Um, and so I'm kind of excited to, <laughs> to talk with you. Um, about how you approach that responsibly, but also without the um, uh, alarmist feeling um, and that we can understand dissociation as a rather normal human experience that isn't a boogie monster that we need to be afraid of. Um, So before we get into all of that juicy topics, um, if you want to kind of introduce yourself, Jamie, and just share a little bit about yourself, about how you got into this work and where you are now. So hello, listeners. I'm Jamie Marich. My pronouns are she, they. I am based in Ohio, uh, which is occupied Erie land, Northeast Ohio. And I am glad to be here talking with you on the podcast. So I grew up in Ohio. Uh, My family's of Croatian descent. And that's a significant part of my journey of how I got into the field. Uh, When I was just out of my undergraduate program, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I moved to my family's ancestral homeland. A war had just happened in the early 90s, and I knew I was able to get a job teaching English in humanitarian aid. And Mm -hmm. I, at that time, was struggling with my own addiction issues, my own mental health struggles, which I later learned were the byproduct of trauma-based association. Yeah. And because I really didn't get any meaningful help here, and a lot of that was just messages I got in my family dissuading help. Um, I went, ran away to Europe and to make a very long story short, I went there as an English teacher. I came back with a kind of knack for social work and working with, uh, 
the larger context of what my students were struggling with. And I was mentored by a very wise American social worker there who, after teaching me the basics of recovery and validating a lot of my own experiences as trauma, she said, go back to graduate school. And I said, I hated psychology as an (laughs) undergrad. That's a terrible idea. And she assured me it wasn't. And I would like it once I started getting in the field. And so, yeah, it was during my internship in mental health counseling that I was introduced to EMDR therapy because I had two years of recovery from drugs and alcohol. And as often happens, dissociation symptoms really intensified at that point. Yeah. I was working at an adolescent treatment unit where I was being significantly triggered, not by the children, but by the way I saw the children being treated by the hospital, by other societal forces. And I had a coworker who we had a good connection and he really identified what I was doing as dissociating Mm -hmm. and said, I think you're going to need more help in this area if you're going to last in the field. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to a professor I really liked and trusted who put pointed me in the direction of an EMDR therapist. And I was just blessed with such an amazing first EMDR therapist who not only did good EMDR with me, but correctly identified me at the time as uh, having a non otherwise specified dissociative disorder. And now I identify as having an OSDD diagnosis. I'm very close to DID. Um, So I I like to say I'm someone with dissociative identities, a dissociative system, but EMDR was so impactful in my healing. I knew I had to learn it. I had to teach it. I got a PhD and did my dissertation on an EMDR topic. And so I've been teaching and writing about EMDR since 2010. Uh, I became a basic trainer in 2015. So I have three EMDR books, still have an EMDR practice, Uh, also do some things besides EMDR, yet that really has been my main clinical home through these years. It's beautiful. As you kind of paint that picture, I just, I can't help but recognize not only are you academically qualified, but just experientially qualified to be able to like share and really express, um, yeah, so many of the the pieces that we're going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. And I, I know in the, the book that you have recently put out that you've shared with us, being able to look at that, just the stories you share and the people you connect with, I think it's really beautiful to see that being able to share those own personal experiences in there to help add um, that personal touch to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, another thing that I just want to highlight, which I think is wonderful and something that like I really relate to is there's a lot of stigma and fear around um, a DID diagnosis. And I think that part of what comes with that is this idea that oh, if it's that bad, then you're a non-functional human being that can Mm -hmm. do anything. And so (laughs) for those of us that do identify that way, and then to say, and also, you know, we're capable of getting PhDs and having careers and having very fulfilling personal lives, like nothing in life is disqualified because this Mm is present in our system. Um, And yet there are some uniquenesses to living life that way that have to be accounted for and also can give a lot of richness in our self-understanding. And so I'm, you know, really curious, like how all that is blended together for you and how one has informed the other. Um, But I think just kind of as a lead in question, I would love for you to begin by um, sharing how you define dissociation. Like if somebody asks you that question, what is this? Uh, how do you begin to answer that? I know we could probably talk for an hour about that, that one question. We can. And there's a whole chapter in the book where I turn it on the 61 people I interviewed 
to say, how would you define association? And like many things, it's subjective, but so I started as an English teacher. I mentioned that already. And I am still very much an English teacher more so than I am a scientist with how I approach a lot of content. So whenever we have a word like dissociation, I tend to dig into the word origin first. Mm-hmm. and explore what is this English word that so many of us are scared of even mean. Mm-hmm. And at its root, it comes from Latin, meaning to sever or to separate, yeah. to sever or to separate. So when I teach that in a course, and I going to drop that knowledge on my students, I then ask, what is it we're severing or separating from? Mm-hmm. And you can have variances of answers, yet the, the two main things are usually we're severing from the present moment because the present moment is unpleasant, painful, boring, overwhelming, or we're severing from aspects of ourself. Mm-hmm. And as a word, as a psychological concept, it is admittedly a little tricky. Pierre Genet coined it as a psychological construct in the late 1800s. In his native French, the word was désagrégation, which more directly translates as disaggregation. Mm -hmm. So kind of different segments, if you will, but William James translated it in a lecture as dissociation, and that's what we were left with. Mm -hmm. And one of the criticisms of the word dissociation as a psychological construct is it means so many different things. Like, is it that zoning out that we can all do, or is it this idea of quote unquote fragmentation or separation within self? So it can mean a lot of things. And something I even talk about in the book is how society leverages dissociation as a tool to keep us separated from each other. They rely on our dissociation, not to pay attention to things that are really bothering and worrisome. And they offer great tools for dissociation. Right. Yes, I, I think exactly. Examples of that. <laughs> and I think what's what's significant to EMDR therapists, especially, is Shapiro, Dr. Shapiro gave us really useful words with adaptive and maladaptive that we discussed that in EMDR therapy when we talk about maladaptively stored or adaptively stored memories. I use those as well in talking about dissociation. A lot of dissociation is adaptive. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is maladaptive. And sometimes it's both depending on the context. An example I use a lot is how daydreaming was probably my most adaptive skill as a child to stay safe. And I think it's still adaptive for me in a lot of ways because it's the source of a lot of my creativity. But in certain contexts, obviously daydreaming keeps me disconnected in a way where I might not be able to function as optimally as I need to in certain contexts. I I love that point in that it they were all adaptive at one point in time, or we wouldn't necessarily have them. Like that all dissociation was adaptive by nature, but it's when it becomes something mm-hmm. that is no longer serving us in a, in a way of protection or um, getting our, our needs met in some way. Mm-hmm. And that's where we can shift that new label of maybe this is no longer adaptive for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that an example that I sometimes share with clients um, around adaptive dissociation that is just a human experience is when we go to the dentist, please dissociate, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
<laughs> like the action of having to lay on a table with a bright light in your face and someone's hands in your mouth. Like it is a really, really helpful skill to be able to not be fully present to all of the sensations and sensory um, yeah, input of such an intense experience. And so to do this thing that is quote unquote healthy for us, like go to the dentist, necessitates some skill of not being overwhelmed by the experience of that. Um, and that is a protective and absolutely adaptive uh, method of using using dissociation. That's a wonderful example. And I have a pretty interesting recent story on that, that typically I'm very good at that when I have to go to the dentist. Uh, <laughs> recently had some dental work done where I felt it would be helpful if I played music in my ear pods as, as I did that. And I asked the dentist, like, would that cause a problem technically with any of the machinery she was using? And she said, no, please listen to music. She's like, do what you need to do to relax yourself. It makes our job easier. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's dentist mm -hmm. uh, condoned. <laughs> dentist condoned. Yes. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> well, Jane, you made a point earlier of, are we severing from the current moment because it's mm -hmm. too much. And that's a great example of, I'm going to dissociate from a present moment because the stimuli or whatever it is, is too much for my system to tolerate. Or are we severing from a fragmenting aspects of ourself? And that's where we start to look more at that structural dissociation of this was a way of surviving my environment while my personality was actively being formed and developed and shaped. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it becomes more than just something that may pop up in the moment of how I regulate myself or how I manage the current environment and becomes more of an aspect of how my personality shows up with other people or how I'm navigating relationships and, and the world around me. That's a very good way to look at it. And how dissociative parts form or, and, and I know I said fragmented, a lot of us aren't, a lot of folks in the community don't like that word as much anymore. Uh, so I, I do think separation is good, but a point I make in the book is when you're working with clients, work with language that serves them. Some yeah. don't like the word parts and yeah. there's other words you can use. So as I know, a lot of the debate, a lot of the controversy is, well, do these parts form? Are they always there? And in the presence of good development, does our personality become more cohesive? Uh, something I asked a lot of the contributors in the book who have DID is, how did you know you had parts? Was it something... A therapist helped you identify and everybody I asked the question to said, I, it's just always the way I was. Like I thought everybody heard voices inside. And then when I grew up, I realized people didn't. And I know my experience is very similar where I didn't really have the language to put on what was happening with my system uh, as I grew up. But then once I got sober enough to kind of see the lay of the land, it's like, yes, there is this aspect of me inside that is very much like a four-year-old is in the car with me. And so like my three main parts that, that ride along with me are four, nine and 19. That's generally what I call them because they're all me, but at these various ages. And when I look at what has developmentally happened to me over the, over that lifespan, yes, at four, nine and 19, I had significant experiences where my brain clearly needed something. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, and so in a lot of ways, people might look at me as, well, my development was stuck at those ages and in, internally I'm still stuck at those ages, but I don't see it that way at all. It's that I, I needed 
(laughs) I needed something. Mm -hmm. And so my brain did some things for me at that point that helped me to sever, if you will, more, more effectively. And so, yeah, maybe I did stay a little bit developmentally stuck there, but I don't see that as a bad thing. Right. Um, One of the chapters in my book is called dissociation is not a dirty word. Right. And that's something that I'm really trying to change narrative about is even in EMDR circles, we have this sense of dissociation, scary, don't let them dissociate. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's bad, quote unquote, if people have parts, the goal should be to get them to all integrate. And it's like, no, most of us couldn't even fathom that don't want that because it really has been a case of living life with, with others on board with us that, that help us through these experiences. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I think that to be able to have an individual define for themselves, what healing means without sure. the, the stigma present of there is a version of you that is the right version. There is a correct way to be a you. And this is what it is. If that's defined by something external to yourself, um, you know, it is suspect. And so I think as therapists, we have to be really careful with the power that we hold in trying to define for somebody else what the right version of them is. And so in the same way that, you know, we're careful with language, right? And each individual is going to have a different relationship with words. Um, there are some individuals that are highly dissociative that desire a more cohesive and integrated system. And mm-hmm. then that don't, that mm-hmm. that actually feels alarming and, and like it would be a grief and a loss to, to lose contact with um, those aspects of self. And so I think uh, creating room for the individual to determine for themselves what health can feel like and look like for their system is a huge part of what we can do as therapists. We don't have to determine that, which for me feels like, you know, what a relief that I don't have mm-hmm. to know <laughs> what is right for this individual. I'm so glad you feel that way. I'm so glad you said that because just echo everything you say. And that's a a big theme that comes across in my writing and my work. And I think the larger problem is once again, the scariness around the word dissociation or specifically the DID diagnosis, seeing this sense of separation as something that's inherently bad and Mm -hmm. something that causes problems. Can it cause problems? Yes. Mm -hmm. And one of the contributors in the book said dissociation is both a superpower and a disability for me. And so it has been a a process of learning how you can still leverage the strengths of it while addressing where it might be maladaptive or, or cause you issues in life. But I think so many therapists, and I, I certainly felt a little of this peer pressure coming into the field, knowing that the little bit of I training, I had a little bit of knowledge I had on DID is this is a bad thing we have to make better. Yeah. And the way to do that is to get people to integrate so that they're not running around with all these parts that are causing them problems. And as one of our contributors to the book said, who's a brilliant therapist with DID, that's really the definition of eugenics is thinking like something is bad and we have to make it better. And, you know, there's some concern that a lot of psychology and the therapy professions are, are that way. And that's, Something I like about EMDR, and it makes me sad when EMDR therapists miss this point, that Shapiro said the purpose of EMDR is to help people live a more adaptive life. Mm -hmm. And she went with the terms adaptive and maladaptive because they take more of the value judgment off of it. Like we don't use good or bad, healthy, unhealthy. It's you determine what's adaptive for you. And of course, if you're interacting with others in life, you'll get some feedback on that (laughs) to know if if you're able to be interpersonally effective yet, I I, I'm really loving where where you're at with this, Melissa, that 
yes, we, we need to let our clients determine what's healing for them. Yeah. Well, and I think a huge thing that we talk about a lot around here is that um, we really kind of feel that way about most of the diagnoses in the DSM. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yes. inher- inherently objectifying. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, behind that objective label is a creative and brilliant strategy that this human being figured out how to accomplish in order to survive their experiences. And as therapists, it's so much more uh, useful to us when mm-hmm. we um, see that as the adaptive strategy that allowed them to survive to this point in their world and then work with them to determine what's the next step. Like what, what mm-hmm. does your continued evolution look like? Um, so Jamie, if you're willing, I would love for you to talk more about how do you see the, the stigma around dissociation impacting the field of EMDR specifically? Like how is that shaping the work, shaping the culture of EMDR yeah. And, and what do you see as some steps that we can take to begin to kind of uh, shift the culture um, in a way that's going to be more helpful to clients? Yeah. A personal reflection I can share on that. Okay. In the EMDR community, so I got trained in 05, 06, uh, started going to the conferences 07, 08, my dis- when I won an award in 08 and my dissertation. So, you know, I kind of first came out in the EMDR community as, you know, a little bit of a, I was out about my recovery from addiction that felt not like a big deal at all. You know, people knew me as like a young smart ass with a lot of opinions that felt like no big deal at all. I'm out as a bisexual woman that felt like no big deal at all. But when the thought of coming out about having a dissociative disorder myself, was considered it's like I can't do that like that's that was scary to me because of the way I heard people even in the EMDR community talk about dissociation and a lot of it was the fear of it like you said people coming out of basic training thinking like you know I can't touch this I remember in my basic training in part two there was a special presentation on dissociation and I was sitting there left with this sense of they're making this so much harder than it needs to be. Yeah. And even a lot of the EMDR, EMDRIA style conference presentations I went to over the years on dissociation, it struck me as so technical. Mm-hmm. I felt insulted, like me and my people were being treated like science projects. Mm-hmm. And that if we can give therapists enough of the science behind that, then, then we'll help people be able to treat this without causing further harm. And there just wasn't a lot of warmth. And I also saw a lot of people presenting on dissociation without, not, with, without discussing how it shows up in their own lives. And and I'm not saying you have to have a dissociative disorder to teach on dissociation, but I was like really craving for something more personal here. And somebody asked me once, like I I, I dipped my toes out in 2011 in my first book, I mentioned that I struggled with dissociation as a big part of my um, PTSD. So I've not exactly kept it secret, but it wasn't until 2018 that I made the decision to outright tell the public and the EMDR community I use singular we pronouns quite a bit. There is a system of us and we all kind of have opinions about you. So like being able to say that was very, it was my scariest coming out. And I've heard this from other people as well, who, who also are, you know, non-heterosexual and have other things to come out about that coming out about dissociation is the scariest thing. And I was just talking to a colleague this morning about it. And she said, yes, I have sat around meetings in community mental health, hearing the way people talk about dissociation. 
uh, and people with DID, or there's this issue that people in our larger community still negate the DID even exists. And I think in the EMDR community, we're a little ahead of that game. Like most everybody, I think everybody I've met who does EMDR and like recognizes dissociation is a thing, but they're just so afraid of it. Um, And that's the problem. And and I first want to say, I I get where dissociation can feel scary, particularly if you've not come to terms with where it shows up for you. Mm-hmm. It can seem like this thing that, you know, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to make them worse. Right. Um, and most folks I know with systems will tell you nothing like I've pretty much handled the worst stuff already. <laughs> and um, like one of our contributors in the book says, it's, it's not the dissociation that's the problem. It's the things that happened to us that were the problem that caused the dissociation. So therapists need to keep validating that and recognizing that and addressing that as trauma. And I think overall, learn to trust dissociative people more. Yeah. And I realize people may be listening to that saying, <gasps> you know, I, but I did that once before and I got it and, and, you know, they, they lured me in and I got in trouble or I did that once before. And, and I, I was just in over my head. So if that's coming up for you, okay, I'm glad you recognize that. I would ask you to then consider, is that keeping you from being effective with other dissociative folks coming through? Because it shows up in every diagnosis. Mm-hmm. If yeah. we're talking technical DSM, it's not just a DID yeah. thing. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's some of my starting talking points about the issue of stigma yeah. in the EMDR yeah. community. And I think, you know, knowing a lot of people who were around at the beginning, you know, I've been consulted and trained and I'm now friends with a lot of them. I think in EMDR world, there has been this fear of, we don't want to make EMDR look bad. Mm-hmm. And so like, let's be hyper cautious right. with a lot of these conditions that may be more complex. And so that's why I think like compulsory use of the DES, which is not a bad thing came in and, and so much of this, you know, don't do dissociate da, 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 and you know, I, I get asked the question point blank all the time. Can someone with DID specifically do EMDR therapy? Because I heard no, like DID folks can't do EMDR. I've had so many DID therapists who are trainees come to me and mm-hmm. say, my therapist said I can't do EMDR yeah. because of my DID. And my short answer is yes, people with clinically significant association can most definitely do EMDR as long as their clinician isn't afraid of their dissociation. Yes. 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 And this is where I think the real rule out is of a lot of EMDR therapists who need to do a little more training and inquiry on it, you know, and that's just DID, but something I know we were talking about before the formal interview is in the EMDR community. I'm glad dissociation is more of a buzzword. I'm glad more people are talking about it but I still fear that there's this sense that it's a specialty. Mm-hmm. Like I have to send this client to someone who specializes in dissociation. Yep. And even a lot of people I've trained and know in the clinical community over the years say, I have this client I want to send to you because you specialize in dissociation. And I honestly start with them with, do you have an established relationship with that client? Because if you do, you are farther ahead than you think. And maybe the key here is you getting a little more consultation and training to work with them instead of referring them out. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have had that identical conversation many times. So with yeah. those so many different times. providers, I yeah. just had it with a psychiatrist last yeah. week. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it is, we are not going to find a psychiatrist who is an expert in our area, especially no. an expert in this. It's not that you're not equipped to do this. It's that you've got to look like you've got to do your work mm-hmm. to be able to continue to work with this client. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that, uh, I I understand some of the fear that gets instilled in new EMDR therapists because it comes from, you know, those horror stories that we've all heard about moving too quickly into territory that we weren't ready to move into. But to me, the, the issue that was present in that dynamic was not the dissociation. It was the lack of skill in determining safety and readiness in the relation between therapist Mm -hmm. and client. Once yeah. established, individuals with DID and really, you know, all all versions of dissociation on that wide spectrum that it can present in, uh, EMDR is one of my favorite tools because it is so uh, honoring of what is present for them, and it really allows the system to self determine what what does change look like, right? And mm-hmm. and what is the next step for me? What am I wanting to do with whatever you know we're targeting? Um, it is it is a really gentle way to offer um, a, a therapeutic um, change experience to that system. Um, but there is tremendous fear that, you know, the minute that we turn on the buzzers, they're going to be out of their window of tolerance and the whole thing is going to, you mm-hmm. know, devolve into a, a mess. And that happens not because of dissociation. And it's also why that can happen regardless of if somebody has DID, right? We can get those really messy sessions because dissociation sure. is present in most bodies. <laughs> I would say all bodies. Yes. yes. Because, and, and this is the wisdom of Amy Wagner, who's one of my colleagues with, with my group. She's a therapist with DID. Uh, she will say if, if uh, trauma is walking through your door, dissociations, parking the car, that it's there, <laughs> it's there wherever you have trauma <laughs> presence. And we know that the EMDR definition of trauma is so expansive. And that's why I, I think we have to look at dissociation, not as a specialty, but as a competency. And something I was delighted about in the book, Dissociation Made Simple, is I put out an open call for interviews when I was deciding to do experiential interviews for the book. And some people I invited based on my interactions with them, but I did do a lot of just, hey, if you want to talk to me, and I shared it amongst my colleagues as well. And so many folks came forward who do not specifically have a dissociative diagnosis. I think of 61 interviews I did, 19 folks have a DID diagnosis, about another 10 would qualify as OSDD, but the rest were people with other diagnoses or some with no diagnosis at all, but identified struggles with dissociation as part of their picture. So I'm really glad to get those voices out there as well to emphasize this idea that dissociation is a competency. And and to your other point, Melissa, um, something else we have to be mindful of in EMDR work is we can do all the prep work possible. Mm -hmm. And often clients and their parts will take us by surprise because so many dissociative systems have a part or two parts whose job is to mask. Mm-hmm. whose job is to show you everything's fine. I could do this. I could handle this. And then once you get in, and then that's where you, good EMDR therapists need to know that the biggest skill is staying calm. Yeah. Uh, and not f- going into that. Wait, wait, th- that's not supposed to happen because that totally messes with freaking out. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I, I try not to, I try not to use that phrase, but yeah, it, it totally affects co-regulation. And so your ability to stay calm and validate and know maybe when to step away from the formal EMDR to help a client make sense of their experience, teach basic grounding. That's often then when you do the education about parts. Right. So uh, I, I, once again, I just preach this anthem of therapists having done their own work helps you be able to co-regulate when the unexpected happens in EMDR. Well, and I love that point because it gives a sensation of if something like that emerges and it takes you by surprise, it doesn't mean that you or the client did anything wrong. It doesn't exactly. mean that, you know, oh my gosh, I should have known we should have caught this. Like that is not really a helpful course of thinking. And I think that a lot of therapists um, get into kind of a shame spiral and beat mm-hmm. themselves when things get messy in the process. Um, but I think for a lot of us that have done our own trauma work, we recognize that messiness is a necessary part of mm-hmm. the heat. And it is profoundly helpful when the mess emerges that somebody can sit in that with us and not be terrified or overwhelmed. It gives us this experience of, I don't need to be afraid of this either. It is possible to feel this intensity and have a part of me that's calm at the same time to know that I am okay, that I'm going to be okay. Like that's the magic of those moments. If we can stay regulated. When you really look at our clients with clinically significant association, they are more resourced internally than our clients without, like they have, they have every, every internal resource they need to survive some of the most horrific traumas Mm -hmm. to be where they are today. And so to be able to trust their systems, Mm -hmm. it's not about us being as the therapist saying, we have, we know all that you need to do, but Mm -hmm. to say their system becomes too activated and Mm -hmm. they utilize dissociation to regulate and manage, trust that. Don't try to pull them out of it. Don't try to rip their strategy away from them and say, no, be present. I need you to be alert and present in the moment. Like trust their systems to do what it needs to do to regulate and stay with them in it saying, we will navigate this together. Mm -hmm. The other thing that just keeps like screaming in my mind is we, we think about the original trauma that we're trying to process if we are reactivating, which these memories are stored in state dependent fashion, like if we're reactivating those, we are going to get the same activation and strategies at play. Like we're going to see our clients dissociate. It's not about avoiding it. It's not about, you know, selecting and filtering in a way that says like, let's not let that happen. If we're not getting that, we're probably not actually tapping into the the original memory in all of its activation, Mm-hmm. but it's about the co-regulation piece. When we see it happen, can they re-experience that previous event with an attuned partner there? With co-regulation, can their systems go into that and then re-regulate and say, oh, actually I am safe now. I don't need that same strategy of dissociation. I can have that activation and trust that I can be co-regulated with another safe person and that is going to be that corrective experience, that that shift of the original memory. Agreed. Uh, you both expressed it so beautifully. And probably the only thing I'd have to add is another part of the corrective experience, especially for a lot of folks with DID and OSDD, is having a therapist validate it 
Mm-hmm. even validate that you have a system and okay, you have parts. Let's talk about them. They, they do this. Let's talk about them. One of your parts has a dragon that guards a castle. Cool. Absolutely. <laughs> so many folks in our community have interacted with therapists that are always challenging reality and saying things like, Oh, well, you know, you, you have DID. I don't know how comfortable I feel doing EMDR with you. Cause it might get, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to handle it. And even though I know a lot of therapists say that from a place of wanting to be responsible, it still sends a message of you're too much to handle. Yeah. So, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. so I, our, our ability to accept our clients and their systems as they are. And I know my first experience I had in community mental health with my first DID client, and this was even having a good sense of awareness of my own dissociative condition. Everybody at that agency from the clinical supervisor, the psychologist was like, no, you can't indulge the DID. Like that's largely something that people just make up. And mm-hmm it was labeled as psychotic. And I think of how many people with psychoses or psychotic disorders, it really is dissociation. And Paul Miller, who I interview for the book has done a lot of amazing work on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I believe we have to start with validating folks, mm-hmm. plural and plural uh, yeah. for who, who they are and what's there and not, being so, you know, like I, one of you said, like, you know, we, we got to get you present. You, you, you have to be present in here to work yeah. necessarily. <laughs> no, that is, I think one of a huge, like in, in early trainings, basic trainings or early therapist learning, like, okay, I need to know how to keep my clients present all the time. Grounding techniques mm-hmm. are beautiful, mm-hmm. yeah. but we also have to be flexible enough to honor the mm-hmm. system and the strategy it's needing like them. Sometimes that is incredibly activating to try to pull them out of that moment of rest for their system. Mm -hmm. If dissociation is helping them re-regulate and manage something, it can be too much to try to pull them back into the present moment. One of the most dangerous things I hear, and it's not just an EMDR, but when I hear it in the EMDR world, it, it really irks me. Don't let them dissociate. Yeah. Or if they dissociate, you know, you got to bring them back. And some people literally snap to do it. Uh, one of our contributors in the book had a therapist use a foghorn on her. Oh, and oh okay, something yeah. I something I will say, and and I am, you know, patient one, I will submit myself for study on this. I've had a lot of EMDR done on me over mm-hmm. the years, both at a very brittle point in my recovery. And I still have a, an EMDR therapist to this day. Some of us, especially with systems, or I should say, identify more defined systems, we need a light degree of dissociation to process. Yeah. Because there's this myth that if a person's dissociated, they can't process. Now, yes, the dissociation can reach a certain point where I'm no good to process. And then that's where I maybe need to evaluate. Do I need rest? Do we need to call this a day? Do we need something else to get more present? But I am, I am patient zero for Mm -hmm. just that light degree of dissociation actually helps me go there. That's right. That and so dual awareness, right? Yes. Like, like that's built into the protocol. If we let EMDR do what it's designed to do, it's mm-hmm. activating in their body what needs to be present in order mm-hmm. for it to occur. And often dissociation was present at the time and therefore has to be present if we're going to process it. And the I think the 
Well, so we have a, a trainer here. His name is Caleb, and he he talks about um, you know grounding is forcing the client to join you in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we, as the therapist, need to go where the client is. Correct. Uh, right, and join them in whatever space they're currently in. And maybe we're not in the space of the full present moment. Maybe we're somewhere mm-hmm. else together, but the the healing factor is still the connection that's present. And uh, I think that just really shifts our stance as a therapist of the goal is not perfect presence in this moment. The goal is that connection and that opportunity to activate what needs to be um, processed with co-regulation present. And then the system can do what it needs to do in order to work with that. So I totally agree. And I think that it can be really relieving as a therapist to know, I don't have to keep such tight control every minute of the session to make sure that they stay present or else, right? Like, I don't know what the Mm -hmm. or else is, um, but we've been warned about it thoroughly in basic training. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or else you're a bad therapist. Usually that's what I hear people say. Yes, that's what it ultimately comes down to. Okay, go with that. (laughs) You may (laughs) want to do some work on that. Uh, Yeah, and I think the or else is a legitimate fear I'm not going to be able to quote unquote, bring them back. I'm going to leave with this one part activated. Who's going to have them go out and like do such a dangerous thing. And, and so I want to validate that, that those fears are there. I will say though, the more you get to know the system and teach this idea that different members of the system may have different skills that they use, find out like how the system operates to have kept them safe this, this far. And if you can dialogue with them in these terms, you have, mitigated so many of these fears. Mm -hmm. And if you're still like, huh, get consultation, because I I really believe this is hard to even do training on Uh, as somebody who is a basic trainer, does advanced topics and dissociation, because so many of the conundrums that trip EMDR therapists up, they do need to really walk through a case step by step. And once you do that with a couple cases, then you'll start to build your confidence, see more of the patterns, and then you'll be able to talk about this as flowingly as the three of us are and have the competency to address it. It is the work of the therapist being comfortable to do it because there is mm-hmm. there are no two clients, just period, regardless of a, a certain clinical diagnosis around association, no two clients are the same. And we can try to identify mm-hmm. or categorize label outline, you know, what we're going to see, but when you're working with something like dissociation, it's so brilliantly creative, so mm-hmm. brilliantly creative for that unique nervous system and what they needed to survive that we, it's really hard to give a training that says like, step by step by step, this is what you do because you have to just be in it and meet that person where they are and feel comfortable and safe enough to do that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I I have a lot of snarkiness that's well-documented out there about how, when people ask me, you know, what model do you use for working with parts? I say, I don't (laughs) because there are problems with all of them. There are good things about all of them. And so I, you know, have learned what I can from the different models yet fundamentally, particularly when you're dealing with dissociative systems, if you're trying to put us in the box of a model, most of us are going to reject that. And that's not how dissociative minds work. You have to help us build our own model. That's going to help us understand our system and our interactions. And that's a very qualitative way of thinking, which, you know, something I'm trained to do, because that's 
second nature to me to be qualitative, but our field is such a quantitative place where we want the protocols and the manuals and the step-by-steps. It's so interesting to me though, because like the humans behind, um, you know, the label of therapists, I think by nature, we are more qualitative individuals. It's like we're waiting for permission for someone to say, it's It's okay okay for you to not (laughs) and a model on the step-by-step, like it's okay for you to do this, you know, mostly almost entirely relationally, right. And still keeping all of your clinical skills on board, but, but letting it be a human to human encounter. And, you know, I have people ask all the time, um, you know, where did you get your training and how to work with DID? And I said, by working (laughs) with DID. Right. Because you show up in your office and you feel so committed to them and they will teach you. Like if you will give them the chance, they will teach you how to do this. And I I think there's like this attitude um, of I have to know before I do. And I Mm -hmm. understand where that comes from. But if if we're doing it relationally, then our focus can be on the safety of the connection that we have with the person. And then we learn together. And that's incredibly therapeutic for that individual to learn together um, who they are and how they've survived and how they've been, you know, created by their experience. Um, and that's, you know, much more gentle than having to apply any kind of model with with rigidity to a human organism. Like that's just hard. <laughs> As you said that, it echoed to one of my favorite quotes in Dissociation Made Simple, which is from Kurt Ronson, who's a EMDR trainer. He was very close to Shapiro at the beginning as a trainer. And he said, if you really want to learn how to be a good therapist overall, find a DID client and let them teach yes. you. They'll, they'll teach you everything you need to know. Yes. I think I think that's so well, well yeah. pointed. And since this is an EMDR therapist, I mean, just to give Kurt a shout out, I'm so delighted he was willing to be interviewed for the book. Cause I think a lot of young EMDR therapists like don't necessarily know who he is. Like he's not one of the big names that's discussed with dissociation, but I knew he knew his stuff yeah. when my best friend got trained by him in EMDR therapy. And she came back from her training. She goes, yeah, there was this guy named Kurt who said that the calm, safe place is a dissociative exercise. I'm like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Like even that conversation yeah. made me like trust him. And then a few years later, I met him at an Embryo conference and I have a very sensitive four-year-old part and a very judgy nine-year-old part. And they both liked him like, uh, yes, he uh, he's thoroughly. We, we, yes. <laughs> and, and so much of how I even assess professionals is as Jamie, the human, like, do I feel safe in their presence? And yeah. he's somebody who I think has really understood dissociation and EMDR since day one. And I would encourage people to you know, listen to him. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I would love for you to share just for our listeners where they can learn more about the work you're doing, your, the things that you've written on the trainings that you have, uh, where they can find you. Sure. So obviously we've talked about it on the podcast and I've appreciated the opportunity to discuss dissociation made simple, which is my latest book. Uh, It really is the book of my heart because my publisher, North Atlantic Books, has let me go there with this kind of voice that I've had on the podcast today. So we have a website set up just for the book that you can get redefinetherapy.com. That's a hashtag I use a lot, redefinetherapy. So redefinetherapy.com takes you to the website for all things dissociation made simple. I also have another public-friendly website 
traumamadesimple.com. That's where everything I've done for free online is there. Yeah. And you can access my teaching videos. I do replays of podcasts on there. Uh, my company is Institute for Creative Mindfulness. So if you're interested more in the training aspects, basic or advanced topics of, of what we do, uh, my company is also, as of last year, uh, put out an advanced association certificate that is more person-centered like this, where Amy Wagner and I are running it. And we're pretty clear, we're not going to tell you exactly what to do. But if yeah. you want the relational connection to this, you can you can study with us. And then just my name.com as well. You'll find me there. And that's probably the best place to go if you're interested in all my books. They're all cataloged there. And I have an Amazon page and a YouTube page. Google my name, you'll find me. <laughs> you're there, the internet. Yeah. We'll share those in the show notes yeah. too for anyone who wants an easy access to them. Yeah. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. It just feels like such an honor to get to have you on here and to get to have this conversation with hopefully a lot of people hearing that and listening and figuring out how they can integrate this into their own life and their own practice Mm -hmm. outside of this. I am I am honored and the pleasure is mine. Uh, this is the first time I'm meeting both of you and it just delights me to hear this level of dissociation acceptance and competence from EMDR therapists and consultants. And I thank you both for the work you're doing. Yeah, yeah likewise. All right, Jamie, well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, say goodbye to all the listeners and uh, check out the show notes so that you guys can find those links that Jamie mentioned. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.